They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 24 The Story Deconstructed I'll start this week with a question. How do you decide whether something is true? When you think about it, that's a pretty big question, a philosophical one that's probably stumped much cleverer people than me for a very long time, but it's a question I needed to think about this week. Yes, gut feel takes you some other way there, but the problem with that is my gut feel and your gut feel won't feel the same. And just because things don't feel right, that's just not good enough. That's not robust enough for a case like the one we're dealing with. It's far too subjective. I needed something more thorough than that, more objective, more systematic. So I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about that. What kind of framework do I need to satisfy myself that the story we heard in episode 23 is true? And if I do develop a framework like that, that is quite useful because we might be able to apply it to any further theories that we come across. Now, I'm not a trained investigator, so I'm kind of inventing this as I go along. But this is the way I came up with that framework, and there's four parts to it. And every one of those parts needs to be satisfied for me to be 100% sure of the authenticity of any story, this one included. So those four parts are this. One, does the storyteller, the narrator, check out? Is he who he says he is? Are the dates, the family connections, all provable? Secondly, are the characters in the story real? Do these people appear in sources completely independent of the story. Thirdly, can I find other people to verify aspects of the story who themselves are completely independent of the storyteller? And fourthly, are the details of the story, the places, the dates, the locations, are they verifiably true? Do they exist? Did they exist? at the time the story is set. So they are going to be my four criteria. And if only one of those comes through, I'm going to only be 25% sure of its truthfulness. And if two, 50% and so on. And really, for me to be convinced about this story, I need to get to at least 75%. And at that point, I'm starting to believe now, it's a tough test, but it should be a tough test because getting it wrong 
Accepting something as true, which turns out not to be true, can be very time-consuming and a completely false trail. And it's by using this framework that we'll be able to take a deep dive into what we heard in episode 23 and see how we feel about it at the end of that process. So we're going to go through a process of deconstructing that account in episode 23, breaking it down into its constituent parts and examining them under a microscope. And we're going to start with the narrator, the man who contacted me and then told me that story. Is he who he says he is? And did he have the family connections to Mr. A that he claimed? I should make a point at the start of this. Until I prove this to be true, this story, I'm going to keep the pseudonyms in place. I think that's the sensible thing to do. When I first spoke to the man over the telephone, he was quite reticent to tell me too many actual names. But when we met face to face, he was much more forthcoming. And over a couple of hours, he told me the real names of all those involved in the story. He also told me his connection. And what he said was, I am the nephew of the main perpetrator, Mr. A. So that's a big claim and one we needed to check. And because I now knew the real name of the person telling me the story and their age, I could get to work. I could find their birth, which I did. And because I found their birth, I could find the maiden name of his mother, which I did. And because I had the mother's maiden name, I could then find the marriage of his parents which I did. So, in order to satisfy the first part, is he who he says he is, i.e. the nephew of the person who is Mr. A, either his mother or father must be the brother or sister of Mr. A. And remember, I know the real name of Mr. A. So, I checked Mr. A's brothers and sisters. Mr. A had two brothers and four sisters, all born in the 1920s and 1930s. And our informant's mother was one of his sisters. So element one is completely satisfied. Our informant was Mr. A's nephew. So the next part of the analysis is, are the people who are named in the story real? Well, firstly, Mr. A, the main perpetrator in this, well, he is definitely real. We don't know if he is guilty of the crimes he's accused of, but he definitely existed. But what about the three men that came down from the northeast, the three men that Mr. A met on the train and encouraged to come to Burton? Well, we have their real names, Mark Tomlinson, Rick Milford, and Paul Waldron, something like that. We can't be absolutely sure about that surname. So what I did was I looked for those names anywhere in the country. I'm not going to focus on the Northeast for a moment. I just wanted to see if there was anyone called Mark Tomlinson, Rick Milford, or Paul Waldron. Now, let's start with Mark Tomlinson. Well, there's surprisingly few. Mark is another name which is very rarely used in the 1930s and 1940s. 
It's just not a very common first name. So they were easy to find. In fact, there's only three Mark Tomlinsons in the country born in the decade between 1935 and 1945. One was in Leek in Staffordshire, one was in Nottingham, and one was in Grimsby. Now, for people outside the UK, Grimsby is not really the northeast, but it's getting up there. It's on the way to the northeast, but you would not call it part of the northeast as we would traditionally demarcate it. And what about Richard Milford? Well, very few. One, in fact, in Plymouth, miles away, as far away from the northeast as you can find. In fact, it's right in the southwest. And Paul Waldron, there is one in Stockport near Manchester, one in Croydon near London, one in Loughborough in Leicestershire, and one again in Plymouth down in the southwest. So, according to the records, those boys born in 1935 to 1945, which is the age these people would have been, not a single Mark Tomlinson or Rick Milford or Paul Waldron lived anywhere near the northeast so that's not a very encouraging start now let's give our storyteller the benefit of the doubt it's 60 years ago i can't remember the names of lads i went to school with never mind people i saw occasionally in the pub so maybe those names aren't right maybe they are not tomlinson but tomkinson or tomlin or Thompson. So what I did was I looked at names similar to the names I've been given, keeping the first name the same, and just to see if anybody came up through that route. So firstly, on Mark Tomlinson, I tried Mark Thompson. And yeah, there was one born in Durham. That's encouraging. That's right in the heart of the Northeast, but nowhere else. I tried Mark Tomkinson, no one in the country. I tried Mark Tomlin, no one in the country. So the only possible is Mark Thompson. Now he was born in Durham, so that's a potential. I then looked at Rick Milford. Now I should point out, I've been checking Richards all the way through this. There might be a slight chance people might use Rick as the end of Frederick, but that's really unlikely. I've stuck to Richards. So Richard Milford. Well, we know there was one in Plymouth. But what about Richard Milton or Miller or Middleton or Milburn? They are the only ones I could really think of that might be similar. And yes, there were a couple of Richard Miltons and one of them was in Newcastle. And there was a Richard Miller in South Shields in Northumbria. And there was a Richard Middleton in Durham, that's encouraging, and a Richard Milburn also in Northumberland. So by extending those surnames, we have given ourselves a couple of more options. And on Paul Waldron, I looked at Walton, I looked at Watson, and I looked at Walden. And I have to say, there was no one. Again, I should point out, Paul is a first name not commonly used in 1930 and 1940. It becomes very common in the 50s and 60s and the 70s, 
but in the 30s and 40s was very rarely used. Pauline, for a woman, was used a lot. Paul was definitely not. So, one more step to go. I thought, I'm going to look in the northeast, in Durham, for every Mark, every Richard, and every Paul, just to see if there's any names similar that I've not thought of. So I went through every single birth for 10 years, from 1935 to 1945, in the northeast, with a Mark, a Richard, or a Paul born. There are no other names that obviously fit that bill. So what we're left with is five options, five actual people. Mark Thompson from Durham, Richard Milton from Newcastle, Richard Miller from Northumberland, Richard Middleton, again from Durham, and Richard Milburn from Northumbria. So we've narrowed it down to five people. Now, Newcastle, Northumbria, it's a pretty big place, and he was pretty clear these people came from Peter Lee. Now, Peter Lee is in County Durham. So I took the two people from County Durham, Mark Thompson and Richard Middleton, and I looked at what they were doing afterwards. And both of those people seemed to stay in Durham, didn't seem to travel to different parts of the country, certainly not to Burton. Certainly, Mark Thompson marries in 1967, the time when he should have been in Burton, and he clearly wasn't, so it's a different man. And the same for Richard Middleton. He marries very soon after the time of interest to us. So I don't think either of those two people are the people who came on the train with Mr. A. Now, that was a complicated explanation. But so far, we've not been able to identify that a Mark Tomlinson from the Northeast, a Richard Milford from the Northeast, and a Paul Waldron from the Northeast ever existed. We've also not been able to prove anyone with even a similar name to that living in the Northeast actually existed. So, what do I take from that? Well, there's really only two possible explanations. Either this is all made up. Or secondly, the people did exist, but their names are completely wrong. Either way, it's not very helpful. So I moved on to the third criteria. Can anyone else verify the story? If not the murder itself, even the existence of these three men? Well, I posed this question to the person who told me the story. And he said, well, we all drank in the same pub in the mid-60s, including these three men. And that was the Star Inn in the High Street in Burton. Now, the Star Inn back in those days was the kind of place you didn't take your grandmother. It was notorious. But he told me five people that used to drink with him at that time in the pub. And they may be able to verify that these men existed. Now, the chances of tracking down five people who went to a particular pub in 1966 or 1967 is pretty remote, especially as they're all men, and women outlive men, so I was up against it. But Lady Luck was on my side. One of the names was quite unusual, let's say, so I thought that's where we'll start. 
and I found someone on Facebook in Burton with that name who could be related. So I contacted them. And a couple of days later, they got back in contact with me. It was the wife of one of the men this person had said drank in the pub. And sure enough, he was very much alive. So I was able to have a very long conversation with him. And it was absolutely fascinating. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Hope you're enjoying the journey that we're on. And a special welcome to any of our new listeners, wherever you might be around the world. Welcome to the family. And a special mention this week to Joe Ragushka, a fellow Bengals fan, by the way, so a big who day to Joe. But he raised a very interesting point in the Facebook group, Who is Fred the Head? And one that got me thinking, and one I should have been thinking about a long time before now. He asked about the socks and the ring, and my answers to those questions are there on the Facebook page. But one detail about the ring really made me think more deeply than I've done before. Now, I should say, I had the benefit of working in the jewellery manufacturing industry in the 1990s for a couple of years. I know jewellery manufacturing. And you remember what the police said, that the ring was sold in 1969. I'm not sure about that. Now, the reason I'm not sure about it is all to do with jewellery manufacturing stock systems. So this is boring, but it's interesting at the same time. It's wholly dependent on the records of the manufacturer. And my experience of jewellery manufacturing was it wasn't recorded in that way. Now, I worked in the jewellery industry in the 1990s, and we're talking about the 1960s. So things may have changed, but I bet they didn't. So hear me out. Rings, particularly the plainest bands, the plainest wedding rings, they're made in batches. They're cast, they're finished, they're polished, they're sent to the assay office for hallmarking, they're returned, and they're put in stock waiting for an order. That's what happens. You don't make plain wedding bands, specifically one at a time. You make them in batches. And each batch would have a unique identifier. We'd need to know how many rings were in that batch and where that batch was. But individual rings definitely would not have an individual identifier. So when they're hallmarked and returned, they're stored by size. So in little drawers, you'd have size O's, size P's, size Q's, size R's, size S's, and so forth. And you'd have 50 or 100 in each one of those drawers. So then you got an order from a jeweler, and that order might say, I need three size O's, I need three size O and a halfs, I need four size P's, I need five size Q's. So the person responsible for the stock would then go and gather those together by size, making sure that the numbers tallied up with the order and send them off to the retailer. And within those rings that were sent to the retailer, there's probably a mix of production batches. Now, remember, the police knew the manufacturer, but not the retailer. They were purely going on what the manufacturer said. And we know that the ring was hallmarked in late 67 or early 68. That is definitely true. Hallmarks 
do not lie. But once those rings had come back from Birmingham Assay Office in late 67 or early 68, they would go straight into stock, available to be sent out to the next order. And I cannot see how, and I know a lot about manufacturing stock systems, I can't see how they could be sure it wasn't sold until 69. It'd just be a ring in a drawer waiting for an order. So, on reflection, this fact that's out there, that the police put out there, that the ring wasn't sold until 69, I don't believe it. And I think it's a mistake to attach any significance to that fact. Definitely the ring was not made until late 67 or 68, but it could easily have been sold in 67, 68, 69 or 70. That was a great question from Joe and it really helped because for the first time I realized through that question, one of the major facts that's out there about this case is probably not true. Now, something else you might be able to help me with. I'm going to talk about podcast numbers. Since this podcast was launched back in March, nearly 50,000 people have downloaded one of the episodes of the podcast. That's an amazing number. And the way the success of podcast is measured is by the downloads in the first week of a new episode. And if you get over 500 downloads in the first week of a new episode, you're in the top 5% of podcasts in the world. We get about 900, which shows you just how popular the podcast is. But I want to get it to 1,000 by the end of the year. And I'm not great at spreading the word about the podcast. I've got too much to do. But if you could, I'd be very grateful. If conversation wears a little bit thin with the relatives over Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever celebration you might be having, please mention the podcast. You'd be doing me a great favour. And as I always say, the more people who know about this, the more chance we've got. So, let's get back to this story. So back to the man I tracked down as one of the five in the pub that our correspondent had said would probably remember these three people from the northeast. And again, I'm not going to use his real name for reasons that will become apparent. Although, obviously I know his real name. And he was a well-known man in the area for the 60s, the 70s and later than that. Connected both to the underworld and to the police. Not a man any of us would mess with. Villains knew him and respected him, and so did the police. He did stray across the line of the law a few times, but the police used him extensively when handing out warrants, knowing that he was one of the few men in Burton nobody messed with. And he knew the Star Inn in the mid-1960s. In fact, he was the doorman there. He knew everyone in there. And if you were the doorman at the Star Inn, you had to be able to handle yourself and this man could but that's not all he did and this is where it becomes particularly interesting he also happened to be the fishing bailiff for the river trent for bass's fishing club for the very stretch of the trent where fred was found 
So his job was to make sure that only members were fishing there and that all the pegs, all the places where people fished were properly maintained. He knew that stretch of river like the back of his hand. And he told me things about that land at the time that I did not know. But what did he make of the story that I'd been told? Now, it's probably worth pointing out again. This man probably knew every deal that was happening in Burton. Every side hustle, every wrinkle, every dodgy deal, every villain. He knew what was going on. And I've checked him out. And I'm as sure as I can be that that was the case. So, when I told him the story which he listened to diligently. We were on the phone for over two hours. His conclusion was, no, that absolutely never happened for three reasons. I'd recognize any of those people if they were in the Star Inn, these three men from the Northeast. None of them ring any bells with me. That's the first thing. Secondly, I knew the types of crime that was happening in Burton. He was involved in some of it and he doesn't recognize either the people or the types of crimes that were described in that story and thirdly if a murder went down in Burton he'd know now I take his point on that to a degree but the problem with that is a murder did go down in Burton and he didn't know but where does that leave us in relation to the authenticity of the story? Well, remember that the man I'd just spoken to was suggested by the storyteller as one of the people who would be able to verify it. So I went to the trouble of tracking him down and he told me quite categorically it wasn't true. So the third criteria, can this story be supported by anyone else independent of the storyteller? had also not been met. In fact, the person I reached out in order to verify it said the complete opposite. So, point three has got a cross in it rather than a tick at this point. And what about the fourth criterion? The details of the places and locations in the story, are they verifiable? And there's a couple of specific aspects about that I wanted to check. Firstly, the hut. This hut in Bladen Woods where the crime happened. Did that exist? And secondly, the bridge. The bridge over the Trent. The same one that in 1971 David Nathan would go over to find the body. A couple of things about that bridge were mentioned in the story that I wanted to check. Things that had not been mentioned before. But I'll come to that. Firstly, the hut does seem to have existed. And it's not quite what I had in mind. I thought it would be a small shed kind of affair. It's not. It was big. It was large, wooden, and could sleep up to 12 people. It's that scale. The scouts used it, I think, when they did weekends away in the country. And it used to sleep up to 12 scouts there. And had two stoves in it. So it's a proper big structure not the kind of thing that people would easily miss so yeah that was there it was never locked by the way back in the 60s things weren't always locked and 
quite a few people who are independent of this story have confirmed, yeah, that was there. And what about the bridge? Well, in the story, there's a very particular detail about that bridge that I wanted to specifically check. And that was that the lock could be lifted from the back of the gate, even if it was locked at the front. You had to go round the side. That would be a difficult, but clearly not an impossible maneuver. Then you'd find yourself on the other side of the gate and you could lift the lock from there. That's quite a specific detail in the story. Now, when I spoke to the man who was the doorman, the fishing bailiff of that stretch of the Trent, he said that he also used that bridge in order to have quick access over to that piece of land. And I asked him, well, did you have a key? Because everyone seems to need a key. And he said, you didn't need a key. You just nipped round the side and lifted the lock from the back. Now, that is an absolute word for word description of what is in the story. So, interesting very specific detail in the story is true now that doesn't make the whole story true but i like small details like that being verified two people now saying you didn't need a key to open the gates if you knew how that could be important whether this story is true or not by the way so i've done the analysis examined the tale against the framework of the four criteria I set out right at the start of this podcast. And let's go through all four of those very briefly again. Clearly, the narrator is who he claims to be, so we have to put a tick in that box. But secondly, the names he provided, they don't exist. Now, that, by the way, doesn't mean the whole story is false. The names, after 55 years may well be wrong. That would be perfectly understandable. One of the things I've learned in this investigation is that you've got to get used to dealing with imperfect recollections, unreliable details. That's to do with the age of the case, not really to do with the earnestness or truthfulness of the witness. But that said, until we actually ID these men, it's impossible to say the whole story is true. And thirdly, of course, the only other person I spoke to who was around at the time suggested by the narrator, and he was a good witness, by the way, in all the right places, he knew all the right people at the time, he said this did not happen. That kind of stuff didn't go down in Burton. And that has to count against the story. But fourthly, those details, well, they check out. So... Equally, I have to apply credit to the story for those specific things coming through. Now, remember, a story can't really be 50% true, especially like this. It's either 100% true or 0% true. What I'm really measuring here is how convinced I am that it's true. And at the moment, I would say I'm about 30% convinced. And as I mentioned at the beginning, that's a long, long way from the threshold that I set myself, which I think was around 75%. So in conclusion, if someone was to ask me now, do you think that story is true? My answer would be, not yet. 
But before we leave this episode, there's a couple of other things I need to mention to you, which might end up being very, very important. And it's one of those strange situations again, where one conversation about something completely different leads me to another conversation, which seems very, very important. So do you remember the doorman, the fishing bailiff that we spoke to? Well, I spent over two hours talking to him about the case. And he told me some very, very interesting things. Firstly, you need to remember this person knew everyone in Burton at the time. And he was the head bailiff along the Stretcher River that Fred was found. And he knew that piece of land like the back of his hand. So he mentioned that quite a lot of fishing clubs knew that stretch. More people than I'd originally thought. Some who were local, many who weren't local, who would fairly regularly in the fishing season go to that stretch as part of fishing matches organised by Bass's Fishing Society. Now, apart from fishermen, no one really ever went there, but there were probably more people that knew about that stretch than I'd originally thought. So that's one thing. But then he mentioned something that really took me by surprise. The place where the body was found, Fred's body, was much more of an island in those days. Now it's silted up. It's kind of connected to the bigger Bass's Meadow. But back then, it wasn't. You'd have to wade through water to get onto it. Not difficult, but you'd definitely get your feet wet. So it wasn't as easy to get onto as it is now. And he told me someone was living there. They'd made a camp on that island where the flint mill was, where the kilns were, where the body was. Someone was living there and living there at the time. And that's completely new. Remember, this man's the bailiff of the river. He's there all the time. He used to wave to him. Didn't know his name, but he was definitely a man living on the island. And he thinks it was around the time of Fred's death. And we can kind of be sure about that. Because remember, I mentioned this man, the bailiff, also had dealings with the police. He helped them serve warrants, the people they didn't fancy serving warrants to themselves. So he knew Pete Huff. And Pete Huff was the detective in charge of the case. And Pete Huff told him about the case at the time, as it happened, as the body was discovered. And this man said to me, his first thought was, it's probably the man who lives there. So for him to have thought that, this vagrant, if that's who he was, must have been there around the time. Now, what did he mention about this man? First thing, he wasn't there long. He was there about three months and then he just wandered off or disappeared. He thought that he'd just gone somewhere else. Now, he remembers it being around June, July, August of a particular year. He does not know the year. But I think the fact that Pete Huff mentioned the death to him and he immediately thought of this man meant it was before that, obviously. And he said he had quite a sophisticated little setup there. He saw him about a dozen times. He used to wave to him. He thought he was a northerner. I think they shouted hello to each other. He thought he was a northerner, about five foot six, he said. 
And one day, he just wasn't there. He's probably moved on, this man thought. Until Pete Huff told him someone had died. So that's a completely new strand of investigation. I need to find out if someone was living on that island one summer at the end of the 1960s. I've also got plenty of work to do working out whether the Mr. A story is true. So I've got my hands full, as always. But until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>